Well, good morning. It's awesome to see everyone here. Uh, this morning, we are wrapping up our study in 1 Peter. So our text for this morning is going to be found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Adam Johnson was America's first overseas missionary who was sent to Myanmar, to the Burmese people. Uh, Myanmar is just north of Thailand. He was sent out in 1812. He was sent, he had his family, and for 35 years, Judson labored amongst the Burmese people to develop the, uh, to translate a Bible into their language and to, to make disciples by sharing the good news that this good news that Peter is writing about. After 35 years, at the end of his life, there was few converts and no churches. And during these 35 years, he was imprisoned, he was tortured, he was starved, he was brought to the point of death. He even had his life threatened by Bengal tigers. And I'm so glad we don't have that threat here in North Florida. His entire life was spent grinding and suffering for the sake of the gospel and I can bet it's fair to say that there was a point in his life where he was like, things aren't going the way that I think they should be going. Life is really hard and this, I don't know if this is exactly how I thought things would turn out. Well, this is right where the church and this body of Christians, this is exactly what they're going, to and going through and Peter is writing to them. They're facing persecution. They're being mocked for their faith. They're starting to experience the pain of following Jesus around people that don't much care for Jesus. Peter knows what they're going through, and he's ending this letter with some very sobering but very wonderful encouragement. You can imagine these Christians saying, I don't know if I signed up for this. Things are really painful. This is not going that well based on the optics of what I'm going through. This is incredibly painful. And for some of you in this room following Jesus, you might be experiencing those same feelings. Jesus, I'm following you and life is really hard right now. 
So it's in these moments where I want you to ask yourself, as we dig deep in the text this morning, I want you to ask yourself, how do I respond when things aren't going my way? How do I respond when things aren't going my way? In the text, Peter shares with us two ways that we can handle situations that aren't going the way that we think they should be going. We can handle it either double-minded or sober-minded. Two ways, double-minded or sober-minded. In verses six and seven, we get a taste for what being double-minded is like. Peter begins this final encouragement by exhorting the church and telling the church, he says this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God to cast all of your anxieties on God. Now, behind these two verses is the backdrop of Exodus 14, where Israel has been brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. They are standing at the face of the Red Sea and behind them is charging all of Egypt's armies coming after the Israelites. They're standing there. They're probably worried. They can hear the rumbling. They can hear the, the charging of the armies coming. And if I'm there, I'm pretty nervous. God, I need you to move by your mighty hands because I'm pretty concerned at this point. Israel's response to this situation is exactly what double-mindedness looks like. Here are their response to God as they're talking through Moses to God. They says this, they say this. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? God, leave us alone. Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is a case study in double-mindedness. This is giving in to anxiety and worry and fear and letting it cause you to doubt the goodness of God, letting it cause you to grumble and, and complain and pridefully think that somehow Life is better without God when things aren't going our way. Jeff Mannion in his book, The Land Between, he has this great quote about how we respond to life's circumstances not going our way and how, how uh, our response grows and grows in our hearts. Listen to this. He says, before we know it, complaint feels right because it's familiar. Just because something's familiar doesn't mean that it's necessarily good, y'all. He says, with every struggle, we become the Israelites grumbling and complaining in the desert. It's here where we miss the faith lessons, where God desires to prepare us and to build faith into us, but we instead are hunkered down in our pattern of complaint. What this is describing is double-mindedness. It's professing faith and trust in God, but somehow simultaneously doubting that God is good for you when you are going through pain. We see this in our lives. God, this is a pandemic and I've just been fired. How am I going to pay my bills? What are you doing, God? Can you really be doing this to me right now? I have kids to feed. Do you want me to live on the streets? God, it's better that you would just leave me alone. 
God, I'm following Jesus. But my friends and family think I'm crazy. They think I'm brainwashed and living in some weird cult. God, help me. I don't have any friends anymore because I'm following you. Do you want me to die alone? God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You see, double-mindedness like this wars against our ability to be humble. And Peter is calling us to humility. And humility truly begins where we, we realize that we are sinners, incapable of saving ourselves, and not only incapable of saving ourselves, but we're also incapable of reforming our own behavior. When we see that we are sinful from the inside out and that we need a savior, when we realize this, we turn from ourselves. We turn from self-focus, what's also called pride. We turn from that in repentance turning to Jesus and we focus on him, faithfully trusting and resting in Jesus and his love for us by rescuing us from sin and destruction by his resurrection. This is what it means in verse seven, when Peter says to cast all of your anxieties on him. Peter wants us to take the natural fear that we experience in this life and cast it all on Jesus, very similarly to the way that you saddle up a horse. All right, if you've got a horse saddle, you don't stare at the saddle the whole time while you're trying to put it on the horse. You have to grab the saddle, look at the horse, and see where you are saddling. All right? Jesus, Peter, is wanting us to throw all of our fears, to throw our worries, to throw all of our anxieties on him instead of living autonomously with our worry and with our fear. This means that we need to ask and plead and cry out for help, doing what we can in and of ourselves to remedy the painful situation that we're in, but all the meanwhile, trusting God with the results. The balance here is that, yes, we will face deep concern about the unknown. We will face deep concern about things that are out of our control, but the key here is we must not indulge our worry. We must not indulge our worry. So what does this look like very practically? Well, first, we need to humbly accept that we're not in control. We realize that God is in control and we partner with God to battle back against our fear and anxiety, but trust him with the results. We work, but we say like the psalmist in Psalm 90 who says, establish the work of my hands, right? It's asking and pleading with God. All right, God, I've lost my job in the middle of this pandemic, so I'm gonna hit my network. I'm gonna to talk to friends, I'm gonna to talk to relatives, I'm gonna to come to church, I'm gonna to talk to people around me. Who's hiring? I'm gonna present my best self and go on as many job interviews as possible and I'm gonna trust you with the results. My friends and family, they think I'm crazy, they think I'm brainwashed, I don't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving, I don't have any friends to do community with, but God, I'm gonna show up to community group. 
I'm gonna show up to church. I might not know a lot of these people, but I'm gonna press in and trust the family that you've provided for me, even when my blood family doesn't even support me. This is what casting all of our anxieties on God looks like. And what this does is it frees us to be sober-minded because at the end of verse seven, God tells us we can be sober-minded because he cares for you. The God of the entire universe that set it into motion, who governs the universe, cares for you as an individual. He knows you and loves you and cared for you. The skeptics in here might be saying, well, prove it. Talk is cheap. And God did prove how much he cared for you. He sent Jesus as a wrath-removing sacrifice to die on the cross, to pay for your sins, to bring you into his family by faith alone and no work that you have to do amongst yourselves. He died on the cross and said, it is finished and this is for you. That's how God demonstrates his love for us. And he loves us more than we can fathom. So how do you respond when life doesn't go your way? Well, we see what it looks like to respond in a double-minded fashion. Let's now look and see how it looks to respond sober-minded. In verses eight and nine, we see a clear picture starting to form about what sober-mindedness looks like. We've seen already that it begins with humility. It begins with casting all of our uh, cares on God. But Peter adds in verse eight, he says, be watchful and firm, watchful and firm in your faith. Why is Peter adding this? Why is Peter adding this in? Peter's reminding us to be watchful and firm because he knows that we have a very real enemy. We have a very real enemy and Satan and the devil, right? And these two phrases biblically means a deceiver and an adversary, all right? And Peter says that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, hungry, ready to devour someone who's unsuspecting and who's vulnerable prey. He's ready to pounce. Now, there's two dangers and talking about Satan or the devil, there's two dangers. One, on one hand, is to think that this is mythological fairy tales, that evil and Satan are not real. That's one danger. That's one ditch that you can fall into and get yourself into a lot of trouble. The other side is to attribute God-likeness to Satan, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere at once, like he is some sort of God, like he's around every bush and every problem. That is also... Uh, a, a ditch on the other side of the road where you can get into a lot of trouble. So biblical balance must be had. And we see this balance at the cross. You see, it's at the cross where Satan really thought he won. He really thought by the death of Jesus that he was victorious and that his power would continue to grow and thrive on this world. But we know that Jesus rose from the dead and that it's because of this resurrection and the power of Jesus going out that he has drastically reduced the power of Satan. And Satan's left with playing tricks and using schemes and using things in this world to cause us to fall when we're vulnerable. 
we see these evil tactics and schemes first in Genesis 3. It's here where Adam and Eve are in the garden. God's told them, don't eat from that specific tree. And Satan comes along and he says, did God really say you couldn't eat that? Surely if God loves you, you make him question their relationship with God. Surely if God is good, questioning the goodness of God, just have a little bite. Surely you're not gonna die. Absolute lies. Not only did he... uh, used deception there, but in Adam and Eve's vulnerable state, they fell and plunged the whole entire cosmos into sin. And then he tried the same tricks on Jesus. In Matthew 4, when Jesus was uh, starving after fasting for 40 days, Satan comes to him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, surely, surely you could take these rocks and turn them to bread. You know, if, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are the God, man, I know you're hungry, look at you. You need some bread, just eat. But he didn't trick Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what these tricks were. And you see, Satan biblically does not come around like this cartoon figure with horns and a little trident, all red and jumping around and trying to poke you and stab you. That's not what Satan does. We, we learn that Satan presents himself, as 2 Corinthians 11 says, as an angel of light an angel of light that lures us and makes sin attractive when we're vulnerable. You see, this is why when we're experiencing anxieties and fears and worries and doubts that we have to cast this all on God, it's because in these moments, if we are indulging our worries, we're vulnerable. We're extremely vulnerable to the attacks and the lures of Satan And this can cause tremendous pain, tremendous pain in our lives. Russell Moore wrote a book called Tempted and Tried, and he shares with graphic detail about how cows are processed or slaughtered. So what happens is they found that when they were using cattle prods and yelling and banging on gates that the cows would uh, have an adrenaline response So after they were slaughtered, they found that the meat was very tough. It didn't have marbling. It lacked flavor. So engineers decided that they would create this gentle slope that the cows would go down and no yelling, no cattle prodding, no banging. And what they did was within these shoots, they mimicked the nudge of their mother's head when they were babies telling them where to go. So these gates just gently kind of nudge them right down to where they're supposed to go. And then they're so happy, they're enjoying themselves, and they don't realize that they're being lifted off of their feet. And it's at that point that a sharp instrument surgically strikes them right in between the eyes. Boom. They've gone from fat and happy to groceries. And they didn't even realize it. More comments on it. He says, forces are afoot right now negotiating how to get you fat enough for consumption and how to get you calmly and without struggle to the slaughterhouse floor. The easiest life for you will be one in which you don't question anything, a life in which you simply do what seems natural. The ease of it all will seem to be further confirmation that this is the way things ought to be. You might feel as though your life situation is like progressing up a stairway to heaven as though it was designed for you. In many ways, the more tranquil you feel, 
the more endangered you are. And guess what these engineers labeled this slaughter device? They called it the stairway to heaven. And y'all, we see this in our lives today. This is very present in our lives. You're having a rough week, maybe a rough season. You're struggling with sin. You haven't been reading your Bible. You've rarely come to worship. You're not really in community group at all. You're living isolated. So you're not filled with, with Jesus. You're not filled with the means of grace that he has for you. You're having a really rough day. And then all of a sudden, somebody out and about just mouths off to you and says something absolutely just that triggers you instantly. So instead of being full of the grace of the Lord and full of uh, winsomeness and love, you decide to keep it real. And keeping it real often goes wrong. So it's in these moments where you're vulnerable, they mouth off at you and be like, I know that they did not just disrespect me. It's time to clap back because nobody is gonna talk to me this way. You know what? Let me tell you about you, your hair, and how your mama looks. And then you throw all these just nuclear bombs of words at somebody. You're in this massive altercation and it's at that point where you are that fattened cow and you have been surgically struck and didn't realize that you went to absolutely spiritually dead in that moment. This happens in our relationships. Instead of working on your relationships and your marriage, you kind of start to drift apart over the years. So instead of working on your marriage, that person at work shares those compliments that hit just right. Like, oh, that suit looks real good on you. You've been working out. Oh, your hair looks extra nice today, looking like a whole snack. About to have me some. Boy, what's wrong? What? You look good today. Look at your arms. You look so good. It's in those moments where you're like, hmm man, I wish my spouse would talk to me this way. Man, if my spouse would talk to me a little bit more, I'd take the trash out. If my spouse talked to me like this, I'd care for him a little bit more. We'd go on more dates. Might be online. Somebody's starting to like some of your photos, dropping you some lines like, oh, you don't need a filter because you're so hot. You don't need, oh, you look extra hot. Oh, that color looks so good on you, bringing out your eyes. Oh, you, oh whoever you with is lucky. Start giving in, start sending some messages. Before you know it, you're that little fattened cow going down the slope, you have no clue what's happening, and then boom, struck right between the eyes, affair. Y'all, this is real, I've seen it happen. I went to seminary with guys that have experienced this. You see, Peter tells us in these moments that we must, resist Satan. We must be aware. We must be standing firm. We must understand exactly what's happening in these moments where we are vulnerable. And standing firm means trusting in Jesus, who tells us that he'll never let anyone or anything snatch us out of his hand. To illustrate this, there was one time where Titus and I, when he was probably two years old, he's about four now, so it's a couple years ago, and we were uh, what was loosely considered a zoo. It was uh, this like area with giant, giant cats and lions and animals, but I was probably here to the edge of this stage 
uh, from a lion behind like a chain link fence. And it was, chain link is like very generous. It was a very loose cage. So I'm standing there, I'm holding Titus and everyone's around very close to this giant lion and I'm holding it in my arms and all of a sudden there's so many people around, take pictures, whatever, and the lion just, and everybody around just shrieks and screams and I'm super tough and I definitely didn't. Um, no, I, he put the fear up in me. I, like I felt it in my body. Like it was so scary and fearful. And I jumped, everybody's screaming. And Titus is sitting in my arms laughing. He's laughing. Now he's laughing because he's two years old and there's some childlike faith there. But here's the key. He knew who was holding him. He knew whose arms that he was resting in. He knew that his dad loved him so much that if anything ever happened with that line that I would put myself in front of him, without a moment's notice, I would give myself for him. He knew how much I loved him and how tightly I cared for him and held him. He had no fear in that moment. And that's what standing firm in your faith in God looks like. There are very real dangers out there. There are very real circumstances that cause us to to be tempted to fall because let's be honest, sin is oftentimes a lot of fun. Sin is a lot easier than resisting and fighting back against, right? It's, It's hard to battle sin. It's hard to not give in to our natural temptations. And if you're here this morning and you don't trust in Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're battling significantly with sin, you might be saying, where's the hope? Why in the world should I ever live like that? What is my motivation to resist sin? I'm pretty good at sinning, all right? I'm really good at getting by without this whole faith system of Christianity that you believe in. And Peter tells us our motivation is in verses 10 and 11. Look with me. He says, after you've suffered a little while, assuming we will experience some sort of pain, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, he will do it, confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, our motivation to fight back against sin, to resist Satan, to stand firm in God is the living God himself who reminds us that our suffering in this life, as painful as it is, is not the end of our story. You might experience persecution, suffering, ridicule. You might experience the whole gamut, disease. You may even eventually get a terminal diagnosis and you might have tears of fear. But what this tells us is that the end of your story doesn't end with tears of sadness, but with tears of joy. That you have eternal glory waiting for you. And because you know what's ahead, you face the suffering of today, resting and standing firm on the resurrected Jesus who was and is and is to come. 
who has suffered just like us and for us and doesn't call you to go through anything he hasn't already gone through and conquered in himself. Judson knew this eternal glory. Judson knew what was ahead of him. So as he was grinding for 35 years, laboring amongst the suffering and the sickness and the persecution, the disease, the tigers that were all around him, he worked feverishly at what God was calling him to do, which was to translate the Bible into the Burmese language. For 35 years, he grinded at this. He was making disciples to the best of his ability, and yet he died with a handful of converts, somewhere in between 12 and 25, and there were no more church, no churches when he died. You see, because of the eternal glory in Christ, this wasn't the end of his story. Because God works in all things in time, is not, God is not subject to time. God still continued to do a work that Judson had been doing for 35 years. At the 150th anniversary of Judson's life, they were in Myanmar, and there was a keynote speaker there. And as they were celebrating the work of Judson, he opens his Bible, and in the front of it, it says, uh, translated by Reverend A. Judson. The speaker looks down at Matthew, the translator, and he says, Matthew, do you know this guy? Matthew starts weeping and he says this, we know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to the one man, Reverend Adoram Judson. There was no doubt in these people's minds how much Judson loved them because of the suffering and the toil that he did for them. But y'all, this is a fraction of what Jesus went through. Jesus didn't die as a pauper. He died as a criminal hung between two thieves for sinners, and he was completely innocent. Jesus took our sin on him because he loved us so much, and he leaves for us not just his word, but eternal life and eternal glory for all who have faith in him. You see, in faith in Jesus all of our sufferings that we experience today, and I mean all of them, from food allergies to creaking bones to terminal diagnosis to the face of death itself, all of it will be worth it because in Jesus, death is not the end of our story. Eternal glory is. Where we'll see him face to face where he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Sickness will be no more. But we will stare into the face of the great I am and sing his praises for all of eternity. That future eternal glory, church, I pray, would strengthen you today to stand firm 
in your trials. When life doesn't go your way, I pray that that eternal focus on that glory of the risen Jesus waiting for you would transform you in the midst of all pain and suffering to help you stand firm in him. Let's pray. Father, life is hard. Life is difficult. You never told us that following you would be easy. You said it would be a narrow road, that few would find it. Lord, you tell us to take up our cross and follow you, but to also be able to sing it as well with my soul in the midst of it all. Father, would you build in us that type of faith? Would you help us to bring our doubts and fears and worries and insecurities to you? And would you change us from the inside out and prepare us for that day when we will be with you forever? With all of the Christians from all time who have gone before, would we be with them and rejoice in singing your praises? And Father, would that transform how we live on this earth? living for your fame and glory, not in self-focus, but steadfast and sober-minded in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.